Psalm 119 and the verse 137. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Letter number 18 in the Hebrew alphabet is Sadi. The word Sadi means righteousness or righteous. The Sadiq in the Bible is the righteous man. So this letter is making us think about righteousness. And it is the word that begins the section, righteous art thou, O Lord. And it's not the only time the word occurs. That word and associated words with it occur frequently throughout this section. Now the number 18 to the Hebrew mind has the significance of life, living, how to live, how to enjoy life. Notice how the section ends. Verse 144. Give me understanding and I shall live. The psalmist wants to live. In other words, he wants to live a life that is pleasing to God. A life that has the Spirit of God in it. That kind of a life. He wants to live a righteous life. And in the Bible, there is a connection between righteousness and life. We should live righteous lives. And righteousness tends to a good and long life. Righteousness will help longevity in life. And there is this identification between righteousness and life throughout the Bible. You see it very often. You remember Peter said concerning Jesus that he bore his, on his own body on the tree our sins. Why? That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. That we might have this life of righteousness, this life of godliness. And so you see how Peter brings it out there, the connection between living and righteousness. Righteous lives. Now the Hebrew alphabet, of course, tells us a story. Because every letter has a name, and in every name there's a story. And Sadi is in that part of the alphabet that tells a story. We have seen the letters before this letter. We saw Samak, we saw Ayin, and we saw Pei. And Samak means to lean, to find support. And it makes us think about leaning on God, trusting in God. And then the Ayin, that's about the eye, eye gate. And then Pei, that's about the mouth, mouth gate, what's going in and what's going out of the life through the gates, eye gate and mouth gate. And that's the right order because the life of righteousness, the sadi, this life of righteousness, it commences with trusting in God, leaning on the Lord, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then maintaining the life of godliness, watching your eyes, keeping eye gate, watching mouth gate, watching what goes out, feeding on the word of God and 
then you become a, a sadiq, a righteous person, a righteous man. So that's the story in that part of the alphabet. And we're coming now to this righteousness, this life of righteousness. In this section, however, David is not focusing on his righteousness. It is not David as the righteous one that is the prominent thought. In this section, there's stars above everything else, the thought of the righteousness of God. Righteous art thou, O Lord. He doesn't say righteous am I, righteous I ought to be. No, that's not his thought in this room. He wants to go in and be taken up with the thought of God's righteousness. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are all your judgments. So he's thinking about the righteousness of God. He walks through the door, the 18th room door of this 22-roomed house of Psalm 119, and it immediately hits him the first word, righteous. Thou art righteous, Lord. We have to think about the righteousness of God this morning then. David is struck by the righteousness of God himself. And this opening verse is, is the key verse, and it's a verse to underline. It directs all our thoughts as we proceed. First of all, then, I want you to notice that David declares the glory of the divine righteousness. He glorifies and praises the righteous God. You know, this is something that sinners can easily forget and do forget about God. There is a focus on God as love, and rightly so, but there is not the same focus on that the Lord is righteous. Sinners don't want to think about that. This age in particular is one that does not like to come into this section of the psalm. The church, however, and all believers must come into this section of the psalm, and they must come into it often, and they must remind themselves frequently that the Lord is righteous. He's a righteous God. Our catechism is an excellent piece of literature. Its question and answers are marvelous. Even the shorter catechism, especially the shorter catechism that the children are taught in the Sabbath school. And one of the questions is, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And that excellent answer contains a number of the descriptions of God's characteristics, what we call attributes. And among those attributes is one that is called the justice of God. The justice of God. Holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And that justice of God is his righteousness. It's the same thing. The justice and the righteousness of God. And in the world that is the least loved of his attributes. Maybe I should say the most hated of his attributes. By the world. And you notice in that description of the catechism, it says that he's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable 
in all of these characteristics. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his righteousness, in his justice. That is, he has no limitation in these things. No limitation in his righteousness. His righteousness is boundless. His righteousness is infinite. He has no possibility of being unjust. Because it's boundless, infinite, it can't know injustice. It can never become injustice at any time or any point. Infinite in righteousness. There is no possibility of injustice or unrighteousness. As Paul says, is there unrighteousness in God? God forbid. No possibility of it. Infinite. And also eternal in righteousness. That is unceasing, unending, perpetually going on in righteousness. Perpetually a life of justice, a being of justice and righteousness. He is eternal in his being, in his essence. And therefore he is eternal in all his characteristics. And that includes this, this justice. And unchangeable. Neither increasing nor diminishing. But always perfect, always complete, always the same in righteousness. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And this immutable aspect of God's righteousness, David goes on to meditate on that. Because you'll see there in verse 142, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. It's as if he's read the shorter catechism. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable. But of course, he hasn't read the Shorter Catechism. The men who wrote the Shorter Catechism, they've read the Bible. That's the right order. It's an everlasting righteousness. His righteousness endureth forever, as he says in another psalm. And the righteous God, this triune God in all three persons, is wholly righteous. The Father is righteous, because you remember how Jesus says, Oh, righteous Father. He loved to use that description of his Father. The world hasn't known you, oh, righteous Father, but I have known you, and I have declared you. My disciples know that you are the one who has sent me. The righteous Father. We have to think about that. And Jesus Christ is the righteous Son. The Son is righteous. You remember how we saw in Hebrews? How that the Father says unto the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness. Is the scepter of thy kingdom. So the Son is righteous too. And the Holy Spirit is righteous because he is the Spirit who was in the prophets, who gave to the prophets the righteous word of God, the righteous testimonies of God that we possess, and he is the Spirit who makes his people to live righteous lives by his sanctifying word. So he's the author of righteousness in the saints. And therefore the Holy Spirit is righteousness too. Now we have to inquire about two things in relation to this opening statement. Where David says, Righteous art thou, O Jehovah, and upright are thy judgments. We have to inquire about two things. First of all, what it is that David says when he says the Lord is righteous. And then secondly, and perhaps more importantly, in the context, why? 
Why is he saying it? Why does he want it to hit home in his heart? Why does he want to be grounded in this doctrine of the righteousness of God? Why is it important to him? Why does a whole room get taken up with it? First of all, David says the Lord is righteous. Uh, What does that mean? He's righteous in himself. This is not creature righteousness. We have to distinguish. This is not like the righteousness of the holy angels. This is not like the righteousness of the saints. Well, there is a likeness. There is a kinship. But the righteousness of God is, is different. Far superior, absolute. Creature righteousness, you see, is according to a standard. You have to put a standard beside it. Creature righteousness has to reach a standard and live to a standard. The Ten Commandments. Our righteousness is to be according to the Ten Commandments and according to the the law of God. Righteousness in a creature is known by a standard. You can't have any knowledge of a righteousness apart from that standard that is set before us. Creature righteousness then has a measure. How do we know what is right and what is wrong? How do we know what is righteousness? How do we know what is injustice? How do we measure it? How do we determine it? What do we compare it with? How can we make the distinctions? How can we have the the discernment? And you see, that's the whole debate in the world. What is righteousness? And the world has a very different answer. They call sodomy and same-sex marriage righteousness, justice, social justice. They have a completely different idea of righteousness. They have a different standard, a different measure. And in the world, it's completely lost in darkness as to what righteousness is. It doesn't know what is right and just really in the darkness. It has a, a sort of kind of a limited knowledge an obscure knowledge whereby it gets some things right about righteousness, but it gets very many things wrong about it too. And so the world has different measuring devices for righteousness. It knows that murder is wrong. And yet that allows for the the murder of the unborn. This can't be right. What kind of righteousness is this? The murder of the weak and the defenseless. The murder of collateral damage. The world allows for, as I said, sodomy and same-sex marriage. And on and on we could go. What kind of standard is this? What kind of measuring rod is this? What does this measure up to? And as well as that, the world's standard, it, it changes from one generation to another generation. They call it relative. The measure of righteousness is relative. It can change from age to age. It can vary through the centuries. What was right for one age is not right for another age. And what is right for us maybe wasn't right for someone else. And what was right for them isn't right for us. And it all changes and varies because they leave God out of the equation. So the measure of creature righteousness, the Bible teaches us, is God's law. What is right and what is wrong, God tells us. 
God determines. It is something that is absolute. And in actual fact, we can say it's God. God is the standard. God is who we are to live up to and to live according to and live like God. He's the measure. Right is what God says is right. Wrong is what God says is wrong. So that's creature righteousness. Creature righteousness has to measure up to God. But his righteousness does not have to measure up to anything. He has no standard. He has no law that he has to be obliged to. He is righteousness in himself. He is utter justice in himself. Without having to compare to anyone or anything or any measuring rod, he is the measuring rod. He is the standard. He is righteousness. God in himself. Eternal, unchangeable, not accountable to any law or to anything, just himself. Utter purity, utter rightness, utter justice in himself. He could not do anything wrong. He could never do anything wicked. He could never act to anything that he makes with even the tinge of injustice or unrighteousness. He is the measure himself. And our righteousness is to conform to him, that standard. And so we are subject to God's law. He is law. And to be righteous, to be what he is. And to have a life like his. And that, of course, is impossible for us sinners. Because all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And God's grace alone can make us righteous. And he has to cover us with the substitutionary righteousness of Jesus Christ. To justify us in his grace. And then he has to impart godliness to us over time in sanctification. And particularly in glorification. To make us utterly like his son Jesus Christ. And it's grace that does that. And we must ever seek grace to obtain that through faith in Jesus Christ, our dear Lord. But likeness to God and what we call, what the world calls morality, can never be dispensed with. And we are always subject to God's standard. And as long as God liveth, right is right and wrong is wrong. And it's always so. And so God always declares which is which. And what is what in that regard. And that is why God will judge the world. He must do so. Because he is righteous. There must be a judgment. And he alone can do so. Because he alone is the absolutely righteous one in himself. So God is the judge. As our father Abraham said. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And you remember how the psalmist said, The Lord, he cometh to judge the earth with 
righteousness shall he judge the world. And as we saw in the book of the Revelation, that's the great throne of judgment at the end. And there are two things that mark that throne of judgment. The first is that it is occupied by God. God alone is the judge. And the second thing is that it is white. Pure and absolutely white. Because he is a righteous judge who sits on that righteous throne. So that's what we mean by the righteousness of God. He is not measured by anything or anyone. He is in himself the purity, the righteousness, the justice. And he tells us what is right and what is wrong. But the other matter is, why is David meditating on the righteousness of God? Why is it an important doctrine to him? Why is he saying this and stirring his heart up about this in the context in which he finds himself when he pens his psalm? Why is he meditating on this so much and gives a whole room to it? Well, I think there are two reasons. And the first is that he is assuring himself of the righteousness of God's ways. And secondly, he is especially assuring himself of the righteousness of God's word. The righteousness of God's ways, first of all, and by God's ways I mean God's works and providence, the things that are going on in David's life, the things that the Lord allows into David's life, the things that David goes through in the providence of God, the things that happen to him, the things that befall him, all God's acts in David's life, whatever he does, whatever God does to him, or whatever God doesn't do to him, or whatever God allows or doesn't allow, God is just in all of that. That's what he's assuring his heart about. Righteous art thou, O Lord. You see, the world cannot believe this, that God is righteous. They see a world of woe and a world of suffering, a world of pain, a world of death, and they boldly declare God cannot be righteous in such a world. And if he is righteous in such a world as we see it, he could not possibly be God because there's all this injustice. And somehow God must be to blame for that, the world says. And so they question the justice of God, the righteousness of God, when they see all the providence, the mysterious dark providence around them, where all these bad things seem to happen. They question very much the justice of God. And the danger is that the devil will come to the saint and make the saint question the justice and righteousness of God. And what does David do? He goes into this room to combat that, to fight the devil in that. So he's battling the devil, battling the doubts, battling the world's accusations against God. So that's what the world sees, you see. The world sees all the bad things around and they say, God is not just. But David, he has faith. And he doesn't look at the world around him. He goes into the room and he looks at God. He has the eye of faith and he looks to the Lord and he sees what the Lord is. He doesn't read providence. He doesn't misinterpret providence. He doesn't read God in the providence. He goes into the word and he reads God in his word and he says, Lord, you're righteous no matter what I see happening in the world. You're just. And so he sees by faith 
And he starts by seeing God as altogether righteousness. And he knows this, that whatever befalls him in providence is done in righteousness. You see, God's works are very deep. And they're done in the deep. And they're mysterious. And we can't always understand God's ways. And we could listen to the devil and interpret them as injustice. But we have to always keep saying to the devil, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Indeed he shall. Righteous art thou, O Jehovah. We have to keep saying to the wicked who accuse God, Who are you, O man, that repliest against God? Who are you who, who lives in sin and who, who does wrong every day? Who are you to say God is unrighteous? Who are you, O man, that would reply such an accusation against a holy God? That's what we have to say to the world. They don't like being told it, but that's what we have to say. Even Pharaoh was brought to say, in all his stubbornness, God broke him. And he was brought to say, as all sinners will irresistibly be brought to say someday, I have sinned. The Lord is righteous, but I and my people are wicked. Pharaoh said that. You think, it, you think it was David said it or some of the great prophets? It was Pharaoh said that. And all the wicked will be brought to say that before the great white throne. All the worst of the Pharaohs in the world will all be brought to say Jehovah is righteous and I and my people are wicked. But better to say it now Long before you get to the great white throne. Better to say it now by faith. And to find a gracious saviour in Jesus Christ. So you see David has all these dark providences in his life. All these difficulties, all these things going on. And he might be tempted to doubt God's justice. Trials and hurts and sicknesses that he's experiencing. And the bereavements and the persecution Look at what David says in the middle of this psalm. Verse 141. I'm small and despised. I'm despised, Lord. I'm trampled. I'm just a little worm that's been trodden upon and despised by all the others around. How, how can that be just, the devil might say to him. How can that be just that the Lord lets you be despised? That the Lord lets you to be small, just a little small, in, in your little small corner, despised, and nobody loves you, and nobody cares for you, and nobody has any regard for you. I'm small and despised. How's that right? Righteous art thou, O Lord. That's how he deals with it. Whatever befalls me, the Lord is righteous. He says, trouble and anguish, verse 143, take hold upon me. I'm troubled every day. I have anxiousness of soul frequently, he says. But righteous art thou, O Lord. So he doesn't accuse God of injustice, even though bad things happen to him. Even though he's sick. Even though he's in pain 24 hours a day. Even though he's lied against and scorned and mocked and 
and as it were, accused of this and that and the other, in anguish, he can still say, Righteous art thou. It's not your fault, Lord. The injustice is the injustice of the devil and of man, but thou art righteous. So you see why he's meditating on this? And you have to do this, child of God, in your trials. And in the mysteries of providence, and when the bad, dark things take place in your life, you have to come into this room. This is the room for the man of God in trouble and anguish. And it begins, righteous art thou, and all thy judgments are just, every one of them. As he said earlier on, I, I know that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. So he's not denying that the Lord has done it. He's not denying that it's the Lord's providence. He's not denying that the Lord has sent the sickness. He's not denying that the Lord has sent the anguish and the affliction. But he says, Lord, in your faithfulness you've afflicted me. There was a reason for it. And it was a reason in justice and righteousness. And we must always say the same, brethren and sisters. So there's always a good reason. Just reason, a righteous reason. Even when the bad things are allowed in our life by the Lord. But there's another reason why he's meditating in God's righteousness and justice. And it is to assure his heart of the rightness of the word of God. It is to not just comfort him about providential word, but the word that God gives to him in commandment and direction for obedience. He is persuaded that his words are right and just and true. The words of the mouth that he's been taking in, he's now thinking about their righteousness, their justice. Whenever we say that abortion is wrong, to us, we know it's wrong because it's the words of God's mouth. Because he is righteous, what comes out of his mouth must be righteous. What comes out of his mouth must be just. This is what the connection that David is making. So he's not just, as it were, meditating on the righteousness of God. He's going to God, to his word, to what's coming out of his mouth. What are you saying to me, Lord? What are you telling me to do? Where are you telling me to go? How are you telling me and directing me to behave? In your word, that word must be right. It must be just. Because you are just. You're right. So David is getting to the word, you see. So whatever it tells us is right. It's the divine standard. And it's this that we have to measure ourselves by. This is the absolute. Because it comes from God's mouth. The world doesn't want that. It wants its own standard. Like, like a bit of rubber that you can you know, bend about and change around and mold to suit you, your circumstances and your thoughts. But we can't do that. This, we're the rubber. And this, this molds us to be godlike. To be like the righteous redeemer. He's putting the emphasis on God's word. Verse 137. Upright are thy judgments. He's talking about the word of God. The, the judgments that the Lord says we should do. Verse 138, thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. You see the emphasis on the righteousness of the commandments? They've come out of your mouth, they've come from your word, they're righteous like you. Verse 140, thy word is very pure. It's righteous, it's just, it has this purity. Because God has this righteous purity. His word is the same. 
Verse 142, thy law is the truth. Verse 144, the righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. He doesn't just say your righteousness is everlasting, Lord. He says the righteousness of your testimonies, the righteousness of your word, the righteousness of what you want us to do is everlasting. It doesn't change. Abortion is always wrong. Sodomy is always wrong. Lying is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. Killing is always wrong. The righteousness of those testimonies are everlasting. So seeing all of this is so, knowing that God is righteous and knowing that his word is righteous, what does David do? What way does he kind of come out of this room, having meditated on this? Well, he tells us, I just pointed out very quickly, verse 140, thy word is very pure. But what does that mean? Thy servant loves it. I love it, Lord. Your word is like you, Lord, so pure. I just love it. This is how he comes out of the room. Having thought about all of this, I just love that righteous word. The purity of it. There's a beauty in purity that the world doesn't see. But the child of God sees it. I love it, Lord. And then verse 141. I don't forget your precepts. They're righteous, they're pure, they're like yourself, Lord. How can I forget them? I can't forget them. Because they're, they're, they're like you, Lord. They have this purity. And then verse 143, he says, Trouble and anguish take hold on me, but I don't let that stop me delighting in your commandments. Thy commandments are my delights. He's able to delight in God's word, even though he's in the dark place, and in the troubled place, and in the persecuted place. Because the righteousness of the word attracts him. And it's wonderful to be able to know that whenever you suffer, that you're suffering for righteousness' sake. And the word is all the purer and all the more delightful to the soul. So a delight in your word, Lord. And then he goes out of the room. This is his last request. We're highlighting the request at the end. He goes out of the room saying, Give me understanding, and I shall live. Live the righteous life that you want me to live. That's what he means. I know it's from your word, Lord, and I know your word, and I delight in your word, but I have to have more understanding, Lord. It's the understanding we need, isn't it? Which is why God gives us the church, the house of God, and the Christian ministry, the pulpit, so that the people of God may be built up in the understanding how they may live the life of the, the sadik, the righteous man. And ultimately that man was Jesus Christ. He was the sadik, the righteous one. If any man sin, for we could never be this righteous one, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the sadik, the righteous one. He fulfills us. He brought in this righteousness. And that righteousness of his is a substitutionary righteousness. Because he didn't have to live it. He came into the world and was made man to live it for his people. And that substitutionary righteousness in our union to faith in the mystery of grace justifies us freely.
But it doesn't only justify us freely. It has such power in it. That it also begins to work in us. And to make us want to live righteous lives. Like Jesus. And so that we can pray. Give me understanding. And I shall live to the life of godliness. As Christ did. May God give his people all this grace.